Welcome to the One Oahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, February 9th, 2023. And joining us for our very first installment of the One Oahu Podcast is the 15th mayor of the city and county of Honolulu, Mayor Rick Blangiardi. Mayor, welcome. Brandi, thank you. Really excited about doing this. Very much so. Yeah, you know, Mayor, we have news releases, you know, obviously you have your social media pages, your radio show appearances weekly, um, but this podcast realm is one we haven't really dove into until now. Mayor, what are we doing here? Well, I think what we're doing is trying to message to as many people as we can. One thing things I love about podcasts is such personal communication, and so hopefully we'll build an audience, but the intent here, more than anything, is to continue to talk about the work of our administration, what we've done, but more importantly, what we're going to do, because I want people to hold us accountable. I want people to understand what it is we spend our days on doing and what they can reasonably expect from us, and I know... I know we have to raise the bar and expectations with the community. We came into office knowing that the trust had eroded over the years. It's our intent to build back that trust, but we know we only can do it through action and deed. Our mayor, first off, I want to ask you this because I think it's pretty fresh in your mind. Hopefully it is. Mm. For the very first time since 2020, the city and county of Honolulu welcomed back Kupuna for the senior Valentine's dance. I heard you were ripping it up on the <laughs> dance floor. King of the dance floor. <laughs> I don't know about that. I found myself next to Joe Logan doing something like the electric slide, <laughs> the Macarena, or some version of something I've never done before. But what I loved about the event was that everybody was just so happy and the joyous. And, and, you know, we had 24 senior homes come, great population of people, up for a good time. The funny thing about it was there was so it, it felt like it was 11 p.m. on a Saturday night, not 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. So I, they were just so up for having a great time. It was joyous. Mayor, uh, you did make some news this past week. On yeah. the front page of Monday's paper uh, was this story on housing. Yeah. Does this story paint an accurate picture of the situation and even the relationship? No, it doesn't. In fact, you know, it's a really misleading headline, but headlines often are that way. It's unfortunate. And the fact of the matter is, is that um, we've made great inroads on affordable housing and we've done a lot of different things. What, you know, uh, the lament there about going in there, what yet again, one more plan. This place is, this, this office, these offices are filled with plans that were written, in many cases, beautifully done but nothing ever really happened. And what we're about is driving execution, and we've said that. And I could cite a long listing of all the things we've done. This is, uh, that article was really, look, I spent 40 plus years in media, and I can tell you, I know a good story from a bad story. It was not a good story. That story did an injustice to the work we're doing here. Yeah, Mayor, I can see that the quote you use, that you're, quote, focused on execution. What did you mean by that? Do you want to expand? Well, yeah, I do, because that is really the essence of, what we're trying to get done here, and that is specific. You know, look, we came in, the first piece of legislation we got passed was Bill 1. Bill 1 really was an augmentation of Bill 7, which had been done by the prior administration. It's a government assistance program. It was a beta test, had no traction. And we looked at it and understood, and once we understood why it wasn't, we modified it. We got it down to Bill 1. We're now starting to get some real traction, and that has everything to do with providing financial assistance, which I hope to get even more subsidy from the, from Governor Green to sweeten the pie of private landowners to actually build um, housing on their existing 
places they have. You know, in the urban core, we have more than 7,000 lots that were built in the 50s that have fallen on hard times. But because they're in the urban core, they're great locations. And they also, and this is really key, have access to infrastructure. You know, anytime you have easy access to water and electricity, that makes it a lot easier and a lot better. So this is providing an incentive for them, uh, substantial incentive financially, for them to either tear down or remodel or whatever those existing properties. That's one. And then, you know, for the first time in 25 years, the city got back into the private activity bond business. Um, we just allocated $135 million. It's going to go public. One of those is going to save, it's going to save over 500 units. Well, it's going to create over 500 units. Actually, in one, it's going to save over 400 to 500 units of, sub, of a project that was going to go public that we're going to keep in affordable housing for the next 60 years in perpetuity. It's a HUD-subsidized project right in Chinatown. It's a huge project that will become public. Uh, we initiated uh, LAPS funds, $28 million of affordable housing funds last year. We're about to do another $40 million this year through some various sources. That's, again, unprecedented monies that are flowing out there to the developers uh, to do things. We are working, as we said earlier, about fixing, you know, DPP is a, is a part of that, but we're, we're working on projects right now that have been longstanding and got nowhere. The Cunea boxcar lot, for example, is five acres, right in an incredible residential neighborhood of which we're not only going to, and we've already completed the drawings and approvals with G70, uh, and this is also going to call for the first child care facility marker of the highway. I mean, this is incredible. There's no child care facilities out there. So we're going to, right in Cunea, I mean, it's in, unbelievable. Uh, we're really close with Verona. Verona is going to be one of, uh, out in, in, uh, out in Capolet is going to be one of the biggest affordable housing projects uh, in, in the state. Uh, and once we get that done, there's, we're in negotiations right now. Um, Evil A Center, huge, 3.8 acres. City's never encountered something like that. Off of development of affordable. That's going to have a lot to do with TOD and the in the train station, which is going to be right there in Dillingham. Uh, we're really close, and I probably shouldn't even be talking about this because we haven't had the deal <laughs> signed, but I'm going to do it anyway just to give specifics. We bought the Waikiki Vista recently, mm -hmm. which right now is uh, housing HPU students, but come the Come uh, the end of this semester, spring semester, they're moving out. We're going to be quickly going into the remodeling of that. But that's 104 units. That's the largest deal ever in the history of the state. 37.5 million. I think I forget is what we paid. Yeah, 37.75. I think. Yeah, 75. Yeah, I wanted to pay 37.5, but we didn't <laughs> pay 37.75. But uh, you know, uh, that's true. Actually, I had that number in mind. But, you know, they had a much bigger number, so we came to a good meeting ground. And so, it is what it is. But anyway, that's going to also be strategically for us that location in, in, in what we know we can create here in a way of affordable housing to provide opportunities for people to live in a great location who are also in the workforce mm -hmm. you know is part of what we want to get accomplished so you take that you take bill one and all those all those units in the urban core the things we're doing with major developers the, the private activity bonds there's just so many different facets this is not an easy solution this is the most complicated deal I've ever dealt with. I've been in a lot of complicated business deals. It's amazing the amount of rules, the inconsistency between the city and the state. But I can tell you this. 
if proof positive, because I didn't like that story. That was a bad story, I thought, in my opinion, because what it did, it worked against everything we're trying to do in creating hope in the city. It kind of pitted us against city council. That's not true. We have a really good relationship with city council. We've been in business together for the last couple of years, and every piece of legislation we put forward, the worst vote we had was 6-3. And Tommy Waters and I have a good relationship. I just didn't really like that. And so that said... Um, you know, it is what it is. It's passed. But the reality, if you were to go out and pull the developers in this town right now, they would tell you about the change difference and who we are and what we're doing. And they're proof positive. And I can tell you, I stand and say that confidently because I deal with them a lot. <laughs> so our degree of communication, our interactions, the things we're doing. Look, I didn't say this before. I'm going to say it now. People have a real misconception about housing in this city. And I so did I coming in. For one thing, and this is not even meant to be an excuse. In the city, in the prior administration, one person and an administrative assistant who was really good. We kept the administrative assistant. Mm -hmm. Well, right now we're still looking for housing. It's a one-person department. There's a really misconception. The city has no building division that goes out and builds homes. I don't have a team of guys back there to go, go out and build us a subdivision. That doesn't exist. So in the beginning, we had to figure out to try to ascertain what is the role of the city. You know, the role of the city, if I can draw a sports analogy, it was kind of a playmaker. We can be a facilitator. How do we draw on these funds, whether they're HUD funds that we get from the federal government and how we allocate those, or getting the city back into private activity bonds, or passing a piece of legislation like Bill 1 that is a government assistance. That's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. To have a government, government assistance program where we subsidize private developers to build housing. And, 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 and gratefully to the unions, they stood down on this because we didn't have to, f to keep the costs down so that they're not necessarily paying prevailing wages. You know, it's just been a really good collaboration of efforts. So at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of projects we're working on. We also got back in the business of condemnation. We, we've, we, we condemned 1421, 15, uh, I think 1650 LOI, yep, yep. and 1421 Pensacola. I got so many numbers in my head, forgive me, because we're doing this <laughs> without notes in front of me. But, you know, we're actually pushing for more of that. Now, legally, that's very sensitive. But people ask me all the time, why does the city allow these properties to languish, these condemned properties? And... My attitude in the beginning before the lawyers talked to me is, well, you don't have a right to do that, and if you don't fix it up, we're going to take it away from you. Well, you just can't do that, even though that's what I would like to do, because I think that's the right thing to do. But we're going to work through that. We've already condemned two that had never been done before. You know, so I... You know, it's about execution. It's about looking at this. It's about understanding problems. It's about trying to solve wicked problems, difficult problems. That's the challenge we've put out for ourselves. And so without denigrating anybody who's come before me, you opened up the show saying I was the 15th mayor of the city and county. And as I've said already in this, in this podcast, you know, the times are different. Leadership is situational. You know, the time that you're governing. And this is a very different time than anybody who came before us. But the challenge for us is what are we going to do about the problems we face, the really difficult problems, and, we, and do we have the stomach for that? And that's what we signed up to do. So I'm really proud of this team. I talk with great confidence now because of the team. I do not do this alone. I'm the first to want to give praise and credit. We have an affordable housing working group that's a big collaboration of a lot of our different cabinet people because it takes a cross-sector collaboration. And we're taking things on and we're doing things that we already have despite the pandemic that have never been done before. So I'm very confident about where we're going to go. It's just going to take us a while to get it done. I said earlier, uh, somebody said to me a couple of months ago, and so apropos to this job, that the days are long, but the years are short. 
The meeting I took this morning on housing, so much of what we talked about, and here we are in only the second month of 23, will really manifest in 24. But that's the reality of it. And so you get caught up in that, wanting to make things happen now, and we are making things happen now, but the manifestation of that where it becomes applicable takes time. It just does. It takes time to construct. It takes time to remodel. It takes time to just acquire, to go through deals with cities, to, you know, and, and to whether we're going to rehab something or whether we have to demolish it and so on. So we're going after it. It should have been done a long time ago. There's really been no, no roadmap for that. Like I said, this place is full of plans that never were. Bookshelves lined with things that were beautifully written, well thought out, hard and well-intentioned people, hard work that just never happened. We're going to try to make, make, make things materialize. And that's the best I can tell you. When we're looking at the list now, Westlock Modular, Halevai Olu, 1615 Alawai, Verona Village, the property in Wahiwa, Mohalamai, Kunia Boxcar Lot, which you just mentioned, Waikiki Vista, Hawaii Resource Center, D-Light Bakery, the property in Waiava, the list goes on and on. For those looking for a home or not, so much to be proud of, and like you said, so much to look forward to. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Yes, so much to look forward to. That's In my state of the city, which is going to be on March 14th, we're going to talk about that. And I've told our group this morning, yes, I want to acknowledge some of what we've done, but I want to put it out there with people, what they can expect. And these are the things we are working on, and they can hold us accountable. So I appreciate that acknowledgement on that. And there's actually more than that as well. So okay. we're off to a great start. And I have a lot of confidence, but it's going to take a while. Mayor, and speaking of state of the city, is there any insight you can provide into what you'll be talking about this year? Well, you know, I'm excited about it. It's, it's, it's kind of a... a, a, a yeah, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You're really excited about it, but you also, I, I take it as a challenge to represent the work of our administration. I don't want to let them down. I don't want to drop the ball. At the same time, I want to convey as much as we can to the community. And so organizing all of that is a lot, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it on March 14th. Uh, I, and I, I would tell you that I, I hope to be able to, you know, brag about our team a little bit. Uh, but, you know, this is early on in the game. I think more Importantly, I want to be able to talk a, bit, a lot about the road ahead. But I do want to give people confidence on what we've done and confidence in our ability to handle the things we're going to talk about. All right. So March 14th at 11 a.m. Everyone, mark your calendars. The State of the City Address with Mayor Rick Langiardi. Such pressure. Okay. Continuing on the work that we are doing, last week at the Chinatown Neighborhood Board, you actually presented on a plan, um, and it deals directly with Riverwalk. For those that weren't at that meeting, can you kind of explain what you revealed? Yeah, well, ironically enough, I walked into that plan, into that meeting with two plans, one that was done in 2006, another was done in 2011. Both of them cost the city hundreds of thousands of dollars. The second one in 2011 took 16 months to produce, and everything that was talked about in that plan, and it was a beautifully written plan, never happened. You know, one of the things, even going back to the 2006 plan, they talked about the need for senior elderly housing, you know, in, in um, Chinatown, and that never happened through several administrations. And the fact is, one of the very first things we did was we got Holly Viola done. It's being constructed right now, and that's affordable housing for seniors in Chinatown. And the point of that was I wanted them to be aware of what we were going to start to do on the Riverwalk. Riverwalk and College Walk along the New Wano Stream is one of the more incredible landmarks in this city, totally underutilized, you know, used somewhat, but it's been a notorious place for either homeless to hang out or other kinds of things that go on. We've cleaned up a lot of that. My thanks to American Savings Bank to put their their big bank there, and they spend a million dollars a year in private security on Ala Park and whatever, but we want to turn that into a, a place where we can activate and bring people to what 
art and culture and concerts and just at venues. So we're not just doing it in the streets of Chinatown, which historically is what was happening. We think this is just a great place. You look at the rock work there that was done in 1900. You couldn't build that today in the 50-foot wide, 50-foot ward. Uh, I'll get the words out. 50-foot <laughs> wide sidewalks. That's a lot. That's a mouthful to say. Uh, but it's beautiful. And then when you look even beyond that, if you go up on Malka's side, you realize that right across right across from that area is two of our best botanical gardens that we have in Lilio Kalani and Foster Botanical Gardens. But the stream itself flowing out to the ocean, it's just really picturesque. And as part of our revitalizations in Chinatown, revitalization efforts, this is one that we really want to dress up. But I guess my question is, you mentioned those plans. It seems like a lot of smart people put a lot of time and effort into those plans. What's different this time around? Well, I get right back to execution. I mean, you know, you can have you can have a really great plan, poorly executed. You can have a bad plan, you know, well executed. <laughs> or you can have a great plan that's really well executed. I think that's really what our plan is right now is because the issues are all so complex. And, and I think that's been part of the reason why things didn't get done. Uh, it's you know it's not that easy, and people may think it is, but it's not. So we're working through that. I just came out of an affordable uh, working housing working group this morning, in a meeting, and, and we got a lot of smart people around the table. But we are driving execution, and people will begin to see that. So look, I'm not here to denigrate or find fault with anybody who came before us. We understood the mandate and the referendum that we had coming into office was to make things happen, especially coming into office in the middle of a pandemic when the fear and uncertainty in this city was unlike any I can ever remember since 1965 when I first lived here, justifiably. That's probably true in every city across the country. The pandemic, though, here took special impact because as an island state, and in this particular island, being shut down and locked down was really difficult, had tremendous adverse economic impact. So we're about trying to build back hope, build back trust, uh, and you know, and, and and make things happen. So we're not taking any shortcuts. What we're doing though is we're talking about commitment and making things happen. And and that's really, I think that's all the difference. It's like in every team, every team right. comes in and says, you know, are we going to get it done or we're not? I mean, you know, there's there's lots of good teams that that you know are well coached and a lot of good players and everything else that just never get to where they where this being Super Bowl week never get to <laughs> never get there, right? Ne- never could get to that level. Our expectations of this team is we play at a championship level. We make things happen. You mentioned Super Bowl week. Yeah. Who's your pick, man? Well, I'm going to go with Philadelphia, despite all my friends who think that, you know, uh, Mahomes is the way, the truth, and the light. You know, he's a really great quarterback. There's no doubt about it. But I, I'm an old defensive coach. I think Philadelphia has the better defense. I think great defenses marginalize great athletes. In fact, Bill Belichick, probably my favorite coach in the NFL, that was his specialty, was taking the strength of another team and just taking it away from them. I think the Eagles are going to marginalize Mahomes. I'm going to get a little regionally specific here. When it comes to storm shelters, Oahu shelters, which are mostly the schools that we use, are not built to stand something like a powerful hurricane. Yeah. The nonprofit Hui Ohaula is trying to change that for their neighborhood by building a shelter or a resiliency hub. What do you think the city's role is here? Well, first of all, I want to commend them because we were out there in Honolulu to meet with them last week, and we kind of had a town hall meeting. Um, they've been working at this for a number of years. They've done a lot of preparation. They've cleared out the grounds, and they've just sort of lacked the money and the vision, and I think that that's what we're trying to figure out. You know, they, they've turned to us. 
uh, in this administration with some hope that we could be a catalyst. Uh, I think that this may end up being something more on a federal level with federal support. It's not, it's not a small price tag. It's at least $40 million, but it makes perfect sense. And there's no denying that people on that side of the island, especially on our North Shore coastline, you can see it begin to manifest already with rising sea level. But the roads are eroding. You see sandbags piled up. You see rocks. If you've taken the ride out there to go through Kaula and Kaava, mm -hmm. you know, and out towards, you know, even all further towards Waimea. Yeah. Um, and or for that matter, we've seen recently, you know, houses slipping into the ocean. They've been there for a long time. There's a reality to this, and there's a reality to the f kind of storms that we're seeing. I mean, look at look at the weather patterns on the mainland, you mm -hmm. know, and people have talked about this. So we've been very lucky here. We've been very fortunate that we've not been impacted in ways that really could create great damage. But in the event that, the event that that happens, people need a place to go, and there's nothing like that on the North Shore. You said town hall. Yeah. And when it comes to town halls, Haula isn't the only neighborhood that will be getting some attention. Um, can you talk about your upcoming town hall schedule? Yeah, I'm really excited about that because beginning on March 21st, and actually we're going to run it through a period of time, we're going to do 11 town halls over 10 weeks. The first week we're going to do two, um, but we're going to bring our cabinet with us. Um, and maybe not all the members will see, but a lot of them, because I want all of us to listen listen carefully, uh, and so that we can best address needs. I'm not saying we can clean up everything, but I think if we can have people feel like they have a legitimate voice and, and, and are being heard by city government and in the cases where we can make things happen, we want to do that. I think we want to be responsive. So that's what this is going to be about. It's going to really be beyond the neighborhood board. This is going to be a high-touch level meeting we're going to encourage all those areas, and we'll publish where we're going to be and when we're going to be, and the venues will be set up. But we're really hoping to get a great turnout. It seems a little daunting, though. When you say town hall, it sounds to me a lot like a neighborhood board meeting, which yeah. are all complaint-driven. Yeah. And you're going to put yourself in these neighborhoods to hear everyone's complaints. And this is kind of the role of the job. But, but does that take a toll at any point? You're about halfway through now. <laughs> is that wearing on well, you at all? No, I look, I think this job all day long is constant stimulation, right? I think I, I pride myself on being able to stand in front of a group of people. I think most reasonable people will admit that the things that we're probably going to talk about, these things that seem to be these perpetual complaints, they know that we didn't cause them, you know? And so what we're looking for is to be solution-driven, want to understand the problem. That's the point of this. And I think if, you know, reasonable people understand that if they're heard and we're giving them a voice and we can tell them yes or no or whatever, then, then I think that that's what it's about. So we may not be able to do everything. In fact, I know we won't be able to do everything, but the things that we can say yes to that really need somebody to say yes to, we will. So what keeps you up at Nightmare? <laughs> you know, I, honestly, um, my head does hit the pillow, but I would tell you that if I had an ongoing thought, the things that I, I it is really knowing full well the, uh, the level of responsibility to get things happen. For example, fixing DPP is top of mind for me. It goes right along the lines of creating housing, knowing full well much has been said, not a whole lot has been done. You know, the housing issues have been talked about for the last 50 years. When you start wanting to come in in earnest, understanding the moment in time, because leadership is situational. It's about where you are at that moment in time. And as I said earlier, we are at a place right now where we've never been before. And so that's the challenge of leading at a time like this. This is not an era of past years with some great mayors, because governance was different then. So when I look at it and say, what can we really do 
on housing or fixing DPP, both of which have been decades, decades in, in a state of malfunction. Not that, you know, can we do that? The reality, the challenge of that, that's what, that's what kind of keeps me up. To affect that kind of change, I imagine it takes bodies. Mm -hmm. About six months ago, we took a deep look at some of the roadblocks to city hiring. Half a year later, where do we stand? Okay. Well, it starts with leadership, first of all, though, and this is where I speak with great confidence. Two years into it, we work with a great leadership team. I'm, I'm really convinced of the commitment and the caring and the desire. I'm not doing this job alone, so this is not on me. I, the buck stops here. As the old cliche goes, I get the responsibility of being the mayor. But so much of what has to happen happens with the team. So one of the things that we got hit with when we first came in was the amount of vacancies the city had and had for a long time. And quite honestly, they used to budget for those, but they didn't fill it. Then they would put the money back in the general's fund and just spend it elsewhere. But for me, it's always been, and any success I've ever been a part of, it's always been a result of the quality of the men and women who come to work there and the success through their hard work that they create. So when you look at a situation where the city had more than 3,000 vacancies and was augmenting it by, we had 8,700 people on, the, on our staff as full-time employees, about 1,500 contract people to augment, to get through with some of those essential jobs, but still not even coming close to the 11,000 jobs we had. You looked at that as a, as a business model, if you will, one that is designed or supposed to be driving execution, not the best design. The fact that it takes six months to hire somebody at the city um, was, as we after we did the diagnostics, you know, it's that's almost criminal. I mean, it's that's that is bureaucracy at its worst, unfortunately. And there was a lot of myth as to why that was taking place. We've uncovered that. It, we've proven it's not. We've changed that timeline. But more than anything, organizationally on an enterprise that you know when you're 10,000 people strong, you're gonna have people retiring every year and whatever. What are you doing to counteract that in order so you can maintain it? And, and so the things that were really glaring to me from somebody who's run organizations, city did very little, almost nothing in recruiting. You know, and you've gotta be ongoing recruiting. And the city's a great place to work. You know, we were recognized this year earlier by Forbes Magazine as the second best place in Hawaii, only to Hawaiian Airlines. And somebody joked to me, said, that's because their employees get free miles. I don't know. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of pride amongst the 8,700 people who work here mm -hmm. to work in a place that they love, where their families live, where they grew up, and trying to make it a better place. But we, we really lacked in recruiting. We had very little in the operating budgets was designed to train people so you could retain. In today's workforce, you know, young people coming into a job, you know, they they, 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 they want to, they may not want to work at a place for 30 or 40 years like people of my generation did, but they want, certainly want to come to a place that makes it, feels like they're going to grow and learn. So we, we needed to come a long way on that. And the thing that was most glaring, and quite honestly, uh, really difficult to change, although we've begun to do that, um, is there was really no succession planning. And that is in any great organization, you could go to any bookstore in America or go online, wherever you buy your books from, on management and leadership, and all talk about succession planning. So to have those ingredients missing in a 10,000-person organization mm -hmm. of a lack of recruiting, very little spent on training and development, and no succession planning of any consequence, knowing that when people leave here, I've said goodbye in just two years to so many people who've worked here 30-plus years, out, when they walk out the door, all that knowledge goes with them. 
all that. And then what do you have left? Uh, from a leadership su supervision standpoint, if there was no development of people, somebody leaves who's really, really good at their job, who's going to take their place? And there's nobody qualified because it hasn't been addressed that way. That's not how you run a successful business. All right. All right, Mayor, Bill 57 relating to the public carry of firearms is up in committee this week in council. Right. Hawaii historically has been pretty strict when it comes to issuing these kind of permits. Um, and a majority of those that testified were actually in opposition. I know that you went uh, in front of council as well, but what was your message here for Bill 57? Well, we took a strong position. Look, uh, first of all, what we haven't had before, despite Hawaii's tough gun laws, was the Supreme Court ruling. Right. Right. So, you know, we're going to honor that ruling. And anybody who is qualified, we've got due process. You know, if they're capable and they're qualified, they're going to receive, um, they're going to receive their permit to carry a weapon. But the question is where they can carry them. So in that regard, it is an extension of what our history has been. The local culture, we're not a gun carrying culture. Uh, we've 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 been pretty aggressive on sensitive places. I, I talked to some people yesterday who weren't happy with me about that. You know, because they their their comeback was the criminals. Criminals don't pay attention to, um, you know, sensitive places. But at the end of the day, you know, um, I don't think you can make a, uh, like, I don't think you make a case with me on why you would take a, a gun to church or park on a Sunday afternoon or whatever. We haven't had those kinds of shootouts. Uh, and, I mean, some of the some of the things that people say is actually projecting a Hawaii that, first of all, I I don't know. I've never even seen since 1965. But certainly one. I never want to see in the future. And so in that regard, um, you know, we're going to maintain strong control on sensitive places. We're going to, we'll probably be sued. We'll let the courts decide. Uh, but at the end of the day, we will grant per permits. We're going to respect the Supreme Court and the Second Amendment ruling. But at the end of the day, uh, not going to be all that easy to take, take your weapon uh, in the places you think you can take. I want to ask you about a bill you recently took action on, Bill 52, relating to the bullying of youth. This yeah. one hasn't always been an easy topic to talk no. about, but what does this bill mean to you? Well, it really means a lot because I, um, you know, I grew up differently than the kids who are growing up today. I recognize that, uh, and for that matter, even my grandkids, uh, you know, with social media and other technologies and just some of the attitudes in, in society. But uh, the, the bullying that's gone on has led to, you know, unprecedented, you know, bad results, you know, not the least of which is, uh, teen suicide. Teen suicide here in Hawaii is at the highest level of any state in the country. It's all. It's always been difficult. We don't want to have anything like that that encourages people to torment other people in ways that just aren't right. So bullying has never been cool, but it's gone way beyond just a fist fight in the park between a couple of boys growing up who didn't like each other at school or something like that. And so, to the extent we can protect people, especially vulnerable people, young and old. Because older people get bullied too. And so we wanted to make sure we've got something in place that says, you know what, you don't get to do that. And if you do do that, you're going to pay for it. All right, Mayor, I want to take this time to get to some of the questions that were sent in to us. Um, and actually, one does have to do with someone that is elderly. Mm -hmm. David says he's a single male senior citizen living on supplemental security income. He has never had to do so in 43 years. I think what David is trying to ask is, what is your message for people like him who have never had to rely on any type of assistance you know, until now? Yeah, it's unfortunate. That's the concern. We opened up this discussion today talking about housing, the cost of housing and what we could do. But the reality is, especially in this post-pandemic environment with the inflationary spike that we've all experienced and the cost of goods and services is to, you know, um, 
there's no magic answer. We've tried to make monies available for rent, utility, relief, relief, federal monies, but this is somebody who's trying to be as independent as they can. I admire that, uh, you know, but it's it's become really tough, and that's and that is all the more reason, quite honestly, is you know Hawaii is the national champs on longevity. We have a lot of people living older. In fact, I just we joked earlier about the 24 senior homes that came to the Valentine's Day party, but we have a lot of kapuna here. And I'm really sensitive to that, especially given my age. I'm 76 years old. I mean, I think that put, I, I think that puts me in the Kapuna rank at some level. I think, uh, you know, but I, I get that. But you know, this there's a reality of the world. There's only so much we could do. Uh, but anything that we can do to try to keep the cost of living down, I can promise you, it has our attention. This next one is from Rick L. He says, over the last few years, a homeless encampment has grown from a single person to over a dozen under the Lunalilo Freeway. He goes on to say, our building sees the drug transactions, stolen bicycles, fights, and arguments from the freeway to the popular hangout under the large tree on P.E. Koi and Hassinger. Management at 1506 P.E. Koi is aware of the issue. Unfortunately, their hands are tied as the issues are on a public street. Contacting the police isn't helpful. There's only so much that they can do. He wants to know what he can do, what they can do as a community uh, to help Makiki reduce these issues. Well, that's a great question. I know that exists. In fact, I know that particular area. And, you know, historically, it has been cleaned up from time to time. But inevitably, um, you know, it keeps coming back, it seems. And, and so, you know, I, I think we, at this point right now, there are a couple of things. One, I want to obviously take this lead, if you will, remind our police officers to see what they can do to added patrol uh, in dealing with it. But, you know, one of the other things that we're doing is we're going to put a HONU, which is our um, transitional housing plan, and we're going to put another one back in the city. We've been out in the country. We're going to have one in Wyandotte. We're going to have one out here where we can pick up people and work with them for a couple of days, transition, put them in places. The biggest thing we have to address is it's not so much that these people aggregate and the other things that happen under the freeway. We have to be able to put people in places. And it's not an easy population to work with, but we have to first tee up the places we want to go. So the governor's talking about Kalhales. That's going to take a voluntary effort to go to. Um, we're talking about, you know, we just have the... Um, the, the rest stop that we have uh, at the Potawai rest stop out in Evil A is something I was involved with a number of years ago. It's finally now coming to fruition with the Kali Palama Health Center. Uh, we want to have three or four of those. There's just a lot of things. There's no easy solution. But let me just say this. More than 50% of the people on our streets on Oahu have been on the streets for more than 10 years. Many of them, a high percentage, much higher than 50%, are either drug, alcohol, addicted, or have mental illness problems, and we don't have any of these services. That's why the compassionate disruption wasn't working. Police are not even trained as social workers, just going up and picking up stuff and relocating people. It doesn't deal with the systemic issues. So look, in the meantime, we'll try to keep our police alert to those kinds of things, try not to let those become unbearing. But we are really now, and I've been talking to Governor Green quite a bit about this, and that's why his first emergency proclamation had to deal with homelessness about finding places where we can put people, house people. We need to develop those facilities and those services. And we've actually done a lot with that, but we're only just beginning. It's not an easy problem, but in this particular case, here in Honolulu, it's a scalable problem, and we can make a big, big dent in, in our current problem. This next question is from Mike from Halava, also pretty specific, but we do thank those that have sent these in. This kind of helps us pinpoint where these areas are. He's asking about 
similar situation near the Halava gym, near the tennis courts. But he's asking, is there anything that can be done to remove them, perhaps closing the park from 10 to 6 or enforcing no camping without a permit? Yeah, I'm going to talk to Laura Thielen, who's head of Parks and Recreation, to see how we feel about that. You know, I, I need to get familiar about that. And, and quite honestly, we're not. I, I think that closing the park doesn't necessarily mean they're not the people aren't going to go back in, and I guess maybe we could then have the police arrest them for, you know, either breaking the law or disorderly conduct, vagrancy, whatever. I, I, I want to take a, a look at that and see. And see. And that's um, the good news is about doing these podcasts is that we get to learn about these specific things, and and not unlike other efforts we've made, and we talked about what we hope to get from the town hall to cause our attention. Honolulu is a big city, a lot going on. See what we can do out there in Halava. Are you a pickleball guy? Well, I haven't played yet. For a guy who played Aww. racquetball for years, and everybody, I do know this: it's become the rage. This <laughs> is the number one trend in sports in America right now, all over the country, and certainly here. So, if I, if I could tell you, on, in the world of sports, I've heard much more about pickleball courts than I have the new stadium. Well, how's, Ernest, how's that for comparison? Ernest wants to know what your plan is for building yeah. these pickleball courts instead yeah. of just adding the lines to the existing tennis courts. I know that's and that drives the tennis people crazy too. I've had them in here from the USTA. They don't want any more of that either. So we are in the business of building pickleball courts. And in fact, I will do some homework and find out and be able to tell this audience next time we're on specifically just how many. Uh, but I don't think we could build enough fast enough. I think we could build pickleball courts all over the island. I'm not so sure we'd be able to satisfy everybody. That's the good news, though. <laughs> people are playing. You know, we talked earlier about people dancing and having some joy, and people are out playing. I want to encourage that, so it's a legitimate request. But who knew this game, pickleball, was going to become such a phenom, but it has. Jeffrey wants to know if you and the director of the Department of Transportation Services have considered the creation of a city employee bus pass as authorized under the provisions of Chapter 15B. He goes on to mention the section. Given how limited the parking availability at the Fosse building is and considering how successful free bus week was, as well as the city's goals of reducing emissions, this seems like it would be a no-brainer. Well, it is kind of a no-brainer. I think actually this is somewhat, he's prophetic because we're going to do that for our city employees. <laughs> yeah, we're actually going to have that, and uh, we should have Roger Morton on to talk about that. But I absolutely agree. I think, look, everything we're doing right now is to urge people for public transportation. I have a meeting later on, even today, on complete streets. You know, we've been doing more and more of that with express lanes for buses, bike lanes. Uh, come May, we're going to be operating the rail. You know, we're doing everything we can to not have people dependent on cars and taking public transportation. The good news is our bus, this goes back to Frank Fossey years, <laughs> has been always a, a, a tremendous service to this community. In fact, our bus, the bus, has won national awards. Roger Morton ran it for decades. Excellent. Robert Yu is also excellent. We have really top-level transportation officials. You know, we're putting back routes that we had canceled before. And so if we can make it affordable, as we said earlier about to that man who was talking about the rising cost of living, anything and everything we can do in certain cases. And, and that, that, by the way, the extension of our buses is the handy vans. So we just bought nearly $10 million worth of, of new handy vans. So anyway, we're, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to... Um, we're trying to address those things, and I, I do think for our employees, we want to encourage them because, look, we have parking limitations here. We know that, and that was one of the things in our recruiting that we've learned is that people who didn't want to work at the city, we had no parking to offer them, and you can understand that. So how, mm -hmm. how can we help? How can we offset that? And I think you know, 
doing that is the very least we can do to recruit. This next one was sent in by Cynthia. She says drugs affect everyone's lives here in Hawaii. And then she referenced a statement that Governor David Ige made about more citizens dying of drug overdose than in auto accidents. Yeah. Uh, she says it's staggering to think that we have more drug misusers than bad drivers. And one of the questions she has that's pretty specific to us at the city is, has there been any needs assessment done to see how we will use money by all involved? She's talking about some $87 million that was awarded to the state from the large pharmacy. And she says... Um, state, city council, we need to pull together a consortium to include every level of government and people, regular people, to utilize all these monies. Well, look, I agree, but let me just say something about that 87 million. It's been a while since that's been addressed. Right. It's over a period of time. And quite honestly, the trickle down to the city and counties uh, isn't, isn't that much money against this problem, you know? And so uh, just, in fact, later on today, I realize... I'm, I'm taking a call on, on uh, fentanyl, <clears throat> what we could do. We're living in an unprecedented time right now where drug usage, unfortunately, is you know surpasses our, our bad drivers on the road. And um, it's about education, it's about treatment, it's about a lot of things, and it takes money to do those things. So um, I think I do agree with her. It takes a concerted effort, and I, and I think that we'll, we'll see what we can do. There's so many things that we're taking on, but there's no denying uh, the drugs are a really, a very insidious element in our community, and they've destroyed lives for a long time. All right, Mayor, this is the One Oahu podcast, so for one final thought. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I've really enjoyed doing this with you, Brandy. I'm looking forward to it in the future. There's so many things to talk about. But in this moment, if I can, I just want to take advantage of just the memory of in my friendship with Jim Leahy, who recently passed, because we think about bringing joy to a community, and, and all the years that I, I spent with Jim, not only in the press box with him, but working with him, but also being a big fan of UH sports, sports, all kinds of sports for that matter, and, and the moments that that has created for the people who live here. Um, Jim Leahy was an exceptional talent, and his leaving us now, he will, he will be missed. And so um, to the memory of Jim Leahy, thank you. Thank you for all the great times. And Mayor, thank you. If you have any questions for the mayor or for any of the departments here in the city and county of Honolulu, you can always submit your podcast questions to oneoahu.org slash podcast. That's oneoahu.org slash podcast. And join us next time as we celebrate Mahino Olelo Hawaii or Hawaiian Language Month with our special guest, the Executive Director for the Mayor's Office of Culture and the Arts, Makanani Salah. She'll break down all the ways you can join the city in celebrating Mahina Olelo Hawaii, including, Mayor, the return of the city's Hawaiian song competition. You sing? Yeah, I don't I, sing. I know but, you have a but, voice. But I love we're going to bring that competition back. I love that. <laughs> all those years singing in church? Yeah, no. I know yeah, you got yeah, some yeah, pipes. No, no, church is not where I was singing, but showers maybe, but that's it. <laughs> Well, the last time the Hawaiian Song Competition was held was was uh, 1977. Wow. So we have quite a treat coming up for us. That's great. Yep, that's all next time right here on the One Oahu Podcast. Until then, aloha. Aloha.